Welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I've been looking forward to this one. We've been trying to make this happen for about, I'd say, about five, six months because our guest, let's say, is uh, very worldly, always on the road, uh, forging relationships with foreign militaries as well as looking over 2.4 million service members and civilians that make up DOD. My guest is Ramon Colon Lopez, formerly or, or colloquially known as CZ. That's his nickname, so that's what we're going to be using here. But CZ has an interesting story, uh, born and raised in Puerto Rico, and we're going to get into that. But he is the fourth senior enlisted advisor to the chairman. If you don't know what that is, it's called the SEAC. It means he's the most senior enlisted military service member. And I'm going to say, um, I'm going to praise you this whole podcast because you've just reshaped the role of SEAC. I couldn't tell you who the first three SEACs were to save my life. And I was on active duty, but you have really stepped up. And I, I want to say in a lot of ways you've outled, I know you don't want, don't want this uh, accolade, but you've outled the generals and how you conduct yourself. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I feel bad for the Marine that's filling your shoes. He's got a uh, high bar uh, to leap. So CC, thanks for joining us today. Ah, thank you, Mike. And uh, it's been a long time in the make in the making, but definitely worth the wait, man. And uh, it's really an honor to be uh, in the company of the tribe once again. Uh, again, you know the thing we will get into about CC that you guys don't know, and I think is probably will not be replicated for a few decades. Is CZ came from JSOC, um, which I was fortunate to small spend a very very small amount of time there. Uh, the tier one forces, and that makes him very unique as the uh, senior uh, enlisted advisor to the chairman as well. That's never uh, never happened. How often are you on the road? Uh, on the average, about uh, two weeks out of every month. You know, and uh, it is it is uh, very purposeful because, like you stated, with two point four million people, I mean, you cannot be all things to all people and be in all places where you want it to be. So you have to be very deliberate and surgical on the engagements that you take on. But uh, the one thing that I have been successful as not replicating the actions of my counterparts, the service senior enlisted advisors, because they each have a role and a responsibility to their service. And I tend to stay away from that, you know, from that arena. And we call it encroaching, you know, uh, collaboration without encroachment. And uh, my travel has been concentrated on things that I need to fix and people that I need to influence. How, how did the wife do with this tour? Was this compared to the operational tempo you've had in the past? Was this on par or worse? Well, you know, this was better than the operational tempo back in the 10 years that I spent in JSOC. And uh, she, she's been seasoned for many years and uh, definitely conditioned to deal with the stress of not having me around. We made a decision early on not to have any children, so that facilitated a lot of things. We always had dogs. The dog that we have right now, we actually brought back from the Middle East. And uh, she's probably like one of the best dogs we ever had. But uh, she's always been very, very independent, resilient. And, man, she just picks up the slack when I'm not around. You brought a dog home from the Middle East. Was that a tour? Yeah, or I was, I was living in Qatar for two years, uh, serving with now the chairman, General C.Q. Brown, over there at, yes. at Kayak the Combined Air Operations Center. And uh, she was just a stray that we picked up from one of the shelters, and uh, she came home uh, with us when we let that tour. It, it sounds like the uh, definition of uh, a Marine, a ragtag uh, misfit that nobody wants. Um, let, let's go back to your origins, because this, this is what's interesting. And I know you're heavily involved with Puerto Rico. It, that is a, I don't even say it's a passion project. That doesn't do it justice. That Your heart is with... Uh, with Puerto Rico, you were born and raised there. Give us just a, a, a description of what it was like to be born, what, what your parents did, because I know you eventually moved or immigrated to the uh, the United States. Yeah, so I was uh, I was born and raised in uh, in a southern town called Ponce, which is very prominent in Puerto Rico. But I am not from Ponce. I'm actually from a smaller town called Guanica. It's a bay town, and that town was actually critical during the Spanish American War because that's where the U.S. troops actually came into the island to take over the, the island uh, from the Spanish. And uh, I was born to a low-income family, uh, definitely, definitely low class. Um, and what, what did your parents do? My father was a welder 
when I was growing up, and he actually did two years in the Army. My mother did a job here and there, substitute teacher, and then uh, as a nurse's aide later on. But uh, we were on the lower income bracket. Uh, I lived in the projects out there, some uh, public housing, and uh, then we moved out to the rural area when they actually created some other housing opportunities, basically government-funded. Uh, and uh, that's where I spent the majority of my uh, of my early years. When uh, So low income, I mean, would you use the word poverty? Oh, yeah, I was poor. I was dirt poor, man. Now, for people, you know, I just heard a great quote about just perspective and how people don't know what abject poverty looks like. There's, there's poverty in the U.S. Uh, I mean, is it on par or do, do you consider your upbringing a little bit rougher than what we consider poverty here in the United States? Oh, I, I will consider it Puerto Rico poor, man. Puerto Rico so, poor. Um, and, uh, you know, examples, you know, having to eat cereal, if you had cereal with water sometimes, or diluting the milk with water just because you didn't have enough. Uh, sometimes not being able to make ends meet and having to eat cot soup, uh, eating rice with ketchup. Uh, but the key thing is we always had something. Mm-hmm. And that was because of the choices and the sacrifices that my parents made to make sure mm-hmm. that me and both of my sisters, Dee and Francis, had a better life later on. How did your parents raise you? Well, I mean, what, what were the, the, the values, the principles, the foundation they tried to build you guys up on? If I had to bring one virtue or one value in our home was humility, augmented by humor. We didn't have much, but we always had a reason to laugh. And my mother is by far the funniest person that you ever met. Uh, unfortunately, we lost her a few years back. Uh, both of my parents are gone now. But my mom was definitely the, the glue that uh, that actually kept that family together. Um, very, uh, very humble, very neighborly. Everybody helped each other out. My father came from a large, big family. There were 12 siblings in that family. I will say 10 of them were professionals, two were not. And my father was one of the two that was not a professional. And, uh, but, you know, we always had a very, very strong nucleus of family. Uh, Sundays, going to church, having dinner at grandma's house. Holidays, always the family getting together. And even during national disasters, you know, it was, it was almost like a feast. You know, the hurricane was mm-hmm. coming. Everybody was boarding up the windows. And then, you know, they will get the hot cocoa. They will start roasting the pig. They will get the beer. And the whole family will go ahead and hunker down in one of the safest place, places that we had. But those were my childhood memories. And uh, there was always music. There was always dancing, laughter. And I have very, very fond memories of my childhood because of that. You wouldn't change a thing? Not a couple of things I will change because, you know, with every uh, ounce, of laugh, ounce of laughter, it came a, an ounce of pain. And uh, just because of the hardship of growing up with uh, very little means, I mean, there was there was some some issues with the family. You know, my father wasn't always happy. My mother was always struggling to try to go ahead and uh, make things work, and that created for sometimes uh, an intense childhood. You know, intense in the sense to where when you needed to get away, you really needed to get away, mm-hmm. just to get away from it all. You know, we talk about community here in the United States a lot, but I think it's really lost its origins from decades ago when, when truly communities existed and there's still pockets in the United States. What does it mean to be a community in Puerto Rico? I mean, people looking out for one another, is there really that, that, that strong sense of bond? There was. And, uh, you know, going back now a few times since I left, it's still there. You know, some of the old heads are still walking around the same streets and, the one common thing that you see is that everybody's always looking out for one another. And everybody knows their cousins, their brothers, their sisters, their friends. When there's an outsider, they know and they pay attention. And they're always communicating. And that was, that was the main thing, you know. It's like before WhatsApp, Facebook, or anything else, you know. There was the lady at the corner that had all the information, the scoop on everybody around. Mm-hmm. And everybody will get it. Everybody will discuss it. And then, you know, people will just keep an eye out. But those are the memories that I had when it came to the sense of community in the small town of Guanica, Puerto Rico. If I read this correctly, Ren, how old were you when you, your family immigrated? Well, I mean, technically your dad, you're all U.S. citizens. Yeah. 
you, you moved to Connecticut? That's right. That's right. So check this out. Um, both of my sisters are very, very smart. There's this program in Puerto Rico called Crone to where you actually go to like this boarding school to finish your junior and senior year, basically working straight through the summer and then you get appointed to whatever college you want to go to. Both of my sisters did that. I never got the opportunity because I left before I had the chance, but I was academically lazy, so I don't think I would have gotten a shot at growing myself. But I remember leaving one summer with one of my sisters. My father was already gone in Connecticut, uh, working at a car wash, uh, got a small apartment. And by the time I got home that summer, my mother had sold everything we had, and I came home to an empty house and a few things like on a yard sale. All of that to buy plane tickets to make it to Bridgeport, Connecticut. And once I got to Bridgeport, Connecticut, we were living in the middle of the ghetto, Pembroke Street. And man, it was it was a culture shock because I didn't speak English. I was an eyeball. I grew up in a coastal town, so I wasn't part of the hip-hop culture. I was part of the surfing culture. So that almost created a fight almost every other day coming to and from school. So you grew up surfing in Puerto Rico? Oh, yeah. No way. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of friends, you know, we, when it came to skateboards, bicycles, surfboards, we borrowed each other's things. Yeah. And the beach was free. We always had it accessible, just a quick bike ride away. And many was just there. But uh, that culture didn't quite fit in even though there was a very prominent Hispanic community in Bridgeport, Connecticut, because I was just not part of the hip-hop side of things. And uh, it, uh, it almost created kind of like a, like a testing ground for what I was about to become later in my life. So, When you guys moved, that must have been a rough move financially. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you financially because I had no sense of what finances yeah. were at that point. All we knew is that, man, we were living paycheck to paycheck, uh, sometimes uh, living uh, by the help of food stamps and small apartment. I remember the apartment. So it was, it was one of those old Victorian houses mm-hmm. and divided right down the middle, three apartments on one side, three apartments on the other. And we were on the right-hand side up on the third floor. And it was one of those to where you see kind of like the cheeky type moments in movies right now to where if you're making too much noise, the person from the bottom was hitting the broomstick up on the floor to keep it down. And uh, it was it was definitely a culture shock for me. You know, I'm going to fast forward a little here, but I know your, your folks are no longer with you. I can only imagine the tears would just be rolling from their eyes come November 3rd when you retire. I mean, you're already a pride and joy of, of Puerto Rico. You're, you're a role model for what a young man or woman can work themselves towards. I mean, your parents just must have been just so wildly proud of you. Well, you know, here recently, the small town of Juanica dedicated a street on my name. And my opening speech, I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was, it couldn't be more perfect. It was sunny, breezy, and the wind was just hauling. And I thought that the tents that we were sitting under were actually going to come off the ground. And as I got up to do my speech, I had to improv because I actually had to give a little bit of respect to both of my parents. And I mentioned that the beauty of the day was symbolic of my mom always smiling upon us. And then the high wings and everything else was symbolic of my father's exaggeration for everything that he always told. He was a big storyteller and he was exaggerated. But, uh, it resonated a lot with the people of the town because, man, we, we all grew up together. And a lot of the people that were present uh, for that ceremony were my classmates, uh, the ladies that actually my teachers, school teachers, uh, and so on, including my best friend, uh, Antonio Orta. But, uh, but it, was just a, it was just a great, prideful moment. And one of the last things that they got to see while they were alive was when I was inducted into the Puerto Rico Veterans Hall of Fame. They both, they both got to go to that ceremony where the governor actually bestowed the honor. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't get to see me inaugura- inaugurated as a SEAC, and they will not see me retire from military service. Oh, they'll, they'll see it. Yeah. I know that for sure. They'll see it. So you eventually gave college a shot, but it was not for you at the time. And, and 
one year of college and it was, it was not doing what it was intended to do for me. Um, you know, there, there's a perception that still lingers and it's probably, you know, the Vietnam era, I don't want to say God bless the Vietnam veterans. I couldn't even imagine fighting in that war. When I get around Vietnam veterans and they tell their stories, they're like, Hey, you have any combat stories? I'm like, absolutely not. Um, but you know, the military as you know, well, people join the military, they don't have a future. They don't have any, uh, potential job prospects. Um, I'm sure and clearly you've shown it wasn't a lack of aptitude or capability. You just lacked focus. Talk to me about, um, what, you know, the modern soldier to be and what, again, let me all add this. What people don't know is this, this is the most educated military in the history of mankind. It is. It is. So the reason I left college, number one, is because I didn't feel I needed an education as much as I needed discipline and structure in my life. So that's why I left. I needed to get away from home. I needed to go ahead and create my own life. So I made the choice to get in the military. Now, um, a lot of people also had the, the misconception that in order to progress, you had to have all kinds of degrees to do so. Well, while I didn't have a bachelor's degree until I was at the four-star command level, um, I had a PhD on tactical and operational expertise because I was really paying close attention to everything that my leaders were reading. Uh, we're talking the McCravens, the McChrystals, you know, the Votels, um, because I really needed to make sure that I was fulfilling my role as the combat search and rescue as expert for the command. So I did a lot of reading. I, I did a lot of self-education that eventually carried me through my entire career. But then came that time to where I needed to let go of my bias towards education and eventually get off my butt and get a degree. And it was at that time that I realized that maybe I should have done it sooner because my eyes were just so open to so many things. And I saw it as irrelevant because it wasn't going to help me on the battlefield. But as a human, definitely helped. And lo and behold, you know, you get a degree, then another degree happens and you get an opportunity to go to Harvard. I mean, a kid from Puerto Rico that came from nothing, that didn't even speak English. Those are the opportunities that you get in the military. You know, all you got to do is just put your medal to the test, take the opportunities and just go ahead and drive on, man. But every single one of those, of those opportunities is accessible to anyone that comes in the military. And once you depart, that is kind of like the entity, the beast that you get out of that. Somebody that is confident, somebody that is independent, somebody that is decisive and just throw them in the mix and you'll see what happens. That's what our veterans are today. So you choose to enlist in the air force. And I was, I was shocked when I, I read this. I'm like, no, you actually enlisted as a transportation specialist. So I had to look that up and it shows a guy driving sort of like a, a, a small crane to, to haul a uh, plane. Why did you choose, one, why did you choose the Air Force? Two, who talked you into taking that MOS? Well, um, so the one driving the forklift or the crane, that's the manly side of things. I was on the other side of it. I was actually the guy that will ship your house of it when you moved. So I was, I was behind a desk, man, doing administrative work. And remember, I said I wanted to enlist because I wanted to get the hell out of Bridgeport, Connecticut. So I just came in open general. My English was still very limited. Mm. And uh, the Air Force recruiter was actually really nice. The Marine was not there. And I, I always told myself that I probably would have made a great Marine. And, uh, but opportunity has it that Technical Sergeant Derek Reeson was there that day, and he was very open and honest. So I went ahead and came in open general, and uh, they gave me transportation, and that's what I decided to do for like the first uh, two and a half years. But it didn't take long to realize that that wasn't scratching my itch. Once I came into service and I actually conformed to the military way of life, I was just like, man, this is not for me. I got to do something different. And shortly after that, when I returned from Rockland Air Station, Creek, Greece, to Randolph Air Force, Air Force Base, that's when I made the decision to try out for pararescue. You just used the word conform. And usually there's a negative connotation to that. I you know, conformity is one of the, uh, the tenets of the culture of the military, and it is not a bad thing. When you understand the system and you are fully bought in, which any private sector company wants their people to conform and buy in to the culture, man, life changes. Life changes. It, 
it it certainly does. And uh, you know, individuality is antithetical to that, you know, that conforming nature of becoming a nation's warrior. And military basic training, which I'm gonna speak to here in a few days, is designed to do nothing more than to break civilians out of bad habits and making them realize that the oath that they're about to take is an oath of sacrifice, nothing else. Everything else comes second, and it is not about you anymore. It's about what you're willing to give to preserve our way of life. America cannot lose sight of that. You know, all of this individualistic approach to cater to this particular sector and everything else, all of that has got to go. And we need to make sure that every single one of our sons and daughters that sets foot on basic military training, they realize that they're about to change and that the military does not mirror the society that it serves. It comes from the society, but they become something different. And people have to understand that. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking of, uh, of my father. And, uh, and I, one, I was an unruly kid, always getting in trouble, always looking for where, where the next uh, moment of fun was. And, uh, you know, we, we butted heads, and my, da- my dad would have put me into the dirt if, at the time. Probably still would. Um, but after Marine boot camp, you know, I graduated honorman of the 300 Marines. And it's the one time I saw him sort of, you know, the, there's rope for the two sides, parents' line, because we're about to do a run. He leans over and gives me the fist. And he said it was that moment, you know, my son was, was completely different. And, and I felt that, man. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the, uh, the Marine Corps. I'm thank you, thankful for the, the, the Navy. But you eventually made the decision to go to pararescue. Was it research or did you meet a pararescue man and you're like, I want to be just like him. A pararescue man actually met me and asked me the question. I had no clue, Mike. What question was that? I had no clue. So I'm working at what they call the packing and crating section of the transportation enterprise at Randolph Air Force Base, uh, the 12th Transportation Squadron. And this pararescue man, his name is Gary Lurie, comes in to ship some annual awards for pararescue. And I was wearing a a dive watch. And he asked me, he's like, hey, uh, nice watch. Uh, Do you dive? I was just like, no, I mean, it was, I bought her at the BX. It was on sale. It was pretty cool. And he's like, have you ever thought about doing pararescue? It's like, I don't know much about it. He's like, can you swim? I was just like, I was born on an island. What do you think, man? He's like, all right, smart ass. Uh, if you're interested, have lunch with me, and uh, I'll tell you all about it. So I did. I had lunch with Gary, and he told me about the adventure that was to be if I became a pararescue man. And I bought into it. I just, I bought into it. I went ahead and uh, went uh, almost half blind into it because I didn't really comprehend what selection was going to be like. And uh, here we are today. You started selection. And and so I've never seen pararescue and and combat controller uh, assessment and selection up close, but I've seen the pool evolutions. And it seems like you guys more than anyone. I know it seals, they put us in the water, it's cold. But I, I, like I've nicknamed your school like professional drowning school. Oh, yeah. You started with 113. You graduated 12. That's, mm-hmm. that's not a good attrition. That's a, I'd say, really good attrition rate. Yeah, well, and that was part of the motivation for making it through just because it's, it's not callous to say that you fed off the souls of the weak. <laughs> but... You realize that if you didn't make it, you were going to be in some very exclusive company that was about to do something greater than life itself. And that was really the motivator. You know, that was a place, you know, and that was open to all genders, but, but where true masculinity thrived. And every single one of us wanted to make sure that if we do have the talents to do this great honorable profession, how dare we waste it? And... Man, those 12 that were standing, that was basically the driver to be able to do that. It's definitely a tribe. And you used that word when you came in. Were you looking for a tribe? I it, was. I was. And not only a tribe, a place to belong, but I was also looking for, for a purpose in life. And when I made it through that pipeline, everything was clearly defined. I knew exactly what my lot in life was. Let me preface this. For the uh, the listeners coming from uh, a former recon marine and uh, a retired Navy SEAL, is I always held and I didn't get to work with the PJs until uh, we got to JSOC. I, I don't know why the the regular SEAL teams don't have 
CC, CCT attachments and, and PJ attachments because they are very good at what they do. But watching the PJs at work is awe-inspiring. And, I, you know, some of the stories I'll, I'll keep tight and won't share on this, uh, this podcast, but one, the very best in technical recovery. Right. Like there's 18 deltas, and, and you guys are, I mean, you're all equivalent on the medicine side, but SEAL medics, SF medics, nobody can do what PJs do, whether it's the side of a mountain, side of a ship, uh, it doesn't matter. Tell me about the PJ community and, and that motto that others may live that just brings a sense of overwhelming pride to you. Well, um, a lot of disciplines that actually merge into that technical rescue specialist because PJs are not medics by trade. I mean, we have an, an exquisite medical capability, but it's all about the problem solving. When things go awfully wrong, how do you get out of the chaos to make sure that you provide the people that are on the bad side of the equation the best chance for survival? And that is really what PJs thrive on. Um, the technical rescue piece is something that even the tiers at some point, you know, the Navy side and the Army side try to replicate. And they're like, forget this. This is too much. We'll keep on kicking doors. You guys go ahead and keep on doing what you're doing. And uh, we take pride in that. We take pride in that because that is the value that we bring to the joint warfighter. I'm not here to be a SEAL. I'm not here to be a special forces or a ranger. I'm here to be a technical rescue expert for that team. Something that is unique to us and something that we bring forward. On the other side of things, combat controllers. I mean, we have so many JTACs around the, the battlefield, joint terminal attack controllers. But the controllers actually brought a little bit more to it because of their airfield expertise, their understanding of the air infrastructure to be able to make things work. And that is why our history embedded with the SEALs and some of the other special forces across the nation and even international. It's so, it's so defined because we only do things that we can do, which is a tenet of leadership. You know, as a leader, you should only do the things that you can do. Everything else that somebody else can do, delegate it because that creates growth. But for pararescue, that is really what we thrive on. It's just those things that nobody else can do that we have a niche for making things happen. It's an insane mission when you think about it because you guys are trained to go into a hot situation. You know, you've been part of an assault force. You go in, hopefully you can maintain surprise, get out with, them, uh, with people never known you were there. But PJs are designed to go into a bad situation. Pilots down, people are injured. You got to insert into a hot zone. That's, I mean, that's, that's unique. Well, not only unique, but, you know, you have to keep in mind also that the situation was already bad to begin with if we're going someplace. And then another layer of chaos ensues when we have casualties, when we have uh, any type of contingency that we need to react to it. And then we have to go ahead and be able to react at a moment's notice with uncertainty to make sure that we create the best possible outcome to get somebody a better tomorrow or a chance for tomorrow. Um, but, man... We love that stuff. We do it with a grin on our faces every time. You spend uh, a short uh, period of time on the white side, and you eventually screen for the uh, 2-4 STS, which is the JSOC component uh, within the Air Force. And I've, I've always been a 2-4 STS. I, I'd like to say ambassador because I loved uh, those guys. You end up very quickly after 9-11 in Afghanistan. And there's a uh, – Will, if you can pull it up. Uh, do a Google search on uh, CZ. Uh, there's a photo with you, you big beard. You're wearing the uh, Afghan. I don't know what you, you call that. Uh, Buckle. Buckle. Yeah. Uh, you're wearing the hat. Uh, tell me about the early days because we always, you know, I missed them. I was wildly jealous watching those pictures come back, feeling like less of a man, like I wasn't doing my part. But that was the Wild West. It was. It was the Wild West indeed. And uh, you know, a lot of people got some pretty fond memories of Bagram. But uh, when we first uh, set foot on Bagram, all of the roads were still just dirt. And it was that very fine moon dust. I mean, you couldn't go from the latrine to your tent without being covered, you know, like a sugar cookie. And uh, I still remember the transits going from Bagram to downtown Kabul and getting into Mexican standoffs with some of the Afghan forces. I mean, it was, it was just ridiculous. And shortly after that, you know, being part of the of the car side security detail, mm. uh, man, it was challenging. It was challenging, and 
it was it was indeed the Wild West because there was still so much uncertainty on who was who, who was trustworthy, you know, how on guard you needed to be. Even in the small town right outside of Bagram Air Base, man, you just never knew what you were going to get. But uh, some be- very, very great memories with a lot of good uh, close friends, some that are no longer with us, man. Hey, I came in much uh, later than you, but I still couldn't tell who was who in uh, 2010, 2012. Yeah. You, you know, for a lot of guys, they can sort of homestead at JSOC, and you made a very deliberate decision to take a path towards expanded leadership roles. What was sort of that decision-making process of not keeping your toe on the tactical side the entire time and saying, no, I want more authority, I can affect more change throughout the Air Force? I'm sure that was the goal at first. Yeah, so I, I remember um, I spent uh, the first six years well, actually, the first uh, three years working with the assault teams. And after that, I was given the opportunity to go into advanced force operations. And it was at that time that I ended up, uh, I entered JSAC when I was an E4. And by the time I got promoted to E7, one of the chiefs at the command actually came up to me, E9. And he said, what is your goal for your career? I said, well, I would like to be where you're at. I would like to be an E9 at some point. And he's like, you're going to have to leave the command. You mm-hmm. have been here for six years now. It's like, but, I mean, there's still a lot of fighting going on. It's like, well, um, we think that you need to take your combat experience and go to the PJ school and start training the next crop, and you need to do that for a few years. I said, it's like, I'm not really sure, you know, go to a training command. But I did the right thing. I I spoke to the chief that was going to the to the school at the time. And what they needed was a revamp to go ahead and uh, restructure the training curriculum to train people to immediately deploy shortly after. That was a great, great uh, gig, by the way. Uh, did that for about four years, ended up getting promoted to E9 from there, and then came right back to the command. But uh, that decision to go to that training command actually ended up broadening my scope of how the career field needed to be, number one, training structure, number two, the further utilization of the career field. It's hard to take a warrior <coughs> off the uh, the battlefield. I mean, as we're looking at this picture right here, one young as hell, <coughs> still wearing H gear. Jesus. Oh, yeah. But with, with regards to training, I, I got one six-month tour at BUDS as the junior officer training course director. I loved it. Those kids were sponges. One, they had already finished the hard part. My, my job was to train them to be GFCs, but I, I'm a firm believer that at some point you've got to send the guys to training. And it was like an aha moment. When I was actually training them, I'm like, oh, now I actually realize why we do what we do. I was just following prescriptive measures for so long. This is the way it's done. Yeah. But it allowed me to, to, to see the bigger picture. Um, when you... Went back to the command and then finally left. I mean, that's – and I know JSOC's a different place where guys can pretty much homestead for their entire careers. Uh, but that does stunt, I guess, a larger picture. For some guys, they just want to stay there, and I completely understand it. Did you set your sights on saying one day I could be the SEAC? Or was that not even a – No. No, and, uh, you know, former Chief Master Sergeants of the Air Force actually alluded to the need – for a combat leader to eventually fill the role. Um, I was still a brand new uh, E9, and all I wanted to do is do 30 years as a pararescue man, probably just stay there at JSOC and and retire. But uh, it was uh, shortly after after Neptune Spear, we had uh, an award ceremony in Tampa and the chief master sergeant of the Air Force at the time, Jim Roy, came up and said, hey, uh, is your name going to be on the command chief list? And I told him to pack sand. I was like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, why not? I was like, well, look at what we do here. I mean, look at the reason why you're sitting here today. You want me to do something else, hand back coins and eat chicken dinners, you know, as a command chief? What? And he's like, no, well, I need some combat experience in that rank and file because... I have missed out on several opportunities to have an airman filling a joint role because we didn't have the right expertise. And that's where you come in. I was just like, well, 
can I think about it? And it's like, sure, give you a week, then I'll go ahead and reach back out to you. And I didn't think that he was going to reach back, but he did. But what I did in the meantime is that I consulted with several people that I really trusted. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them said, hey, man, if they're asking you to do it, how dare you do that? So when he called back, I said, all right, I'm in. So that's how I became a command chief. And I'm sure the credibility of where you came from for, I, I hate to use the word regular airmen or just your, your general general population airmen, they must have just looked at you like you walked on water. Um, well, not not necessarily. Uh, I think it was more street cred, you know, just credibility. Like, all right, so this person is not an administratively mindset leader. Mm-hmm. He's more of a credible knows what needs to happen on the battlefield type person. And I believe that a lot of airmen gravitated towards that. And, you know, funny story is that the first week when I became a command chief, I went to the first special operations wing. And we were tracking Jessica Buchanan at the time. You know, I had just left the command, and then the president made the decision to go ahead and get Objective Bell. And I was at the first SAL. And when the decision was made, I was put on the first plane to go back to JSAC to help plan the air side of things. And ended up going to Camp Lemonier, Djibouti, and then later to Galcayo. But uh, No kidding. Yeah. And uh, I was there with a couple of other, a uh, few of our teammates, you know, Wyman Howard, Jim Hensky, it's an example. All studs. And, uh, had yeah. studs, big, big time studs. And, uh, you know, it was after that that I noticed the reaction of the 132 airmen that deployed with us at that deployment. They had no clue that it was a real hostage rescue. But the sense of pride that every single one of them had because they actually did something for the nation was what really opened up my eyes early on as a command chief that I see the value that Jim Roy was talking about at that ceremony in Tampa and why he needed combat credible leaders to be able to do this. And from that moment on, I was sold. It's really sold. For the SEAC position, it's not like you can put an application in. It, you, you are probably selected by people amongst, uh, how, how many people do they consider when they, they select a uh, SEAC? All the combatant commands at the four-star level and the service and enlisted advisors. That's the eligible pool for the SEAC. How many is that? Roughly? About 19. 19. Yeah. How do you find out that one year you've been you're being considered in two. How do they break that decision to you? So it is a two-stage process. So they do the call out and everybody eligible can put in a package for it, right? Um, Excuse me. Then when the packages come in, the the first board dwindles it down to like five, six packages. So you have to make it through the first board. And then those five or six are the ones that actually interview face-to-face with the chairman. And that's how the process goes. Did you immediately put in a package or were you hesitant? I was hesitant at first because I have my sights on retirement already. Um, I was at United States Africa Command. I was less than a year out. And it was a decision to go ahead and tack on another four years, a family decision. So, but we have never, uh, we have never been people to pass on on a great opportunity, you know, specifically if you know that you're going to add value. So took it on, interviewed, General Milley didn't know me, never served together. The one thing that he did, he ended up calling every single commander that I have served on. And the decisive factor for him was consistency. There was a consistent drumbeat on everybody that described you. And uh, that, you know, coupled with that joint credibility from people on multiple sides of the services is really what tipped them to choose me. One, how do you prepare for that role? Two, what's the major mental shift you need to make from, again, being a combat season warrior to really a, a senior role that I, I don't want to say administratively, but you, you're, you're more focused on, on the entire military 
not so much the combat side, but making sure that our enlisted service members are the very best they can be. Well, you know that we have a bias for action. And sometimes that bias can be negative in certain cultures, you know, because we have a lot of subcultures in the service. So you got to be able to deal with that, how to curve that appetite for aggressiveness and sometimes be able to tailor your approach. The other thing that you have to do is, which basically goes along with number one, it's very hard to open doors with a closed mind and remaining open-minded to the views of others, specifically those that think differently, to be able to make the best decisions for the organization. Uh, that humility from growing up dirt poor played a huge role into it because that always gave me the opportunity to just go ahead and shut up, sit back and listen to what people had to say to better understand issues, to better get a read on the people that you were dealing with. And most importantly, to be able to speak that bumper sticker that everybody is speaking truth to power. And that is not an emotional truth. It is a real truth, the ugly, the things that people shy away from telling others face to face. That is really one of the main ingredients that you need to have in order to be an effective SEAC because everybody else is going to be blowing smoke, people's, you know, camouflage uniforms. Um, the SEAC does not have that luxury. The SEAC has to be the honest broker in every boardroom that he or she is invited to because sometimes people go along to get along and that little ounce of truth that you inject eventually tips the decision that is going to affect the total force. You have a theory, and I know there's going to be something forthcoming, and I love the title, Carnivore Leadership. Yeah. For the listeners, just sort of break down where this, the origins of it, how you came up with the title, and what, what, what's the foundation of your belief in carnivore leadership? Well, first of all, publicly, I didn't come up with the title. That was Jim Hinsky. No back, kidding. Back when I was a young PJ uh, working with Jim, um, he always chose to describe people as mediators or grass eaters. Mediators being the aggressive ones that were dependable, loyal, and that they were willing to do anything for the mission. The grass eaters were the passive ones that were just waiting for things to happen and so on. So that's where I got the carnivore versus uh, herbivore uh, thing. Then when I became a command chief, based on the, the guidance that uh, Jim Roy gave me when it came to, uh, to communicating with the troops, I started taking a lot of the lessons learned, and uh, I have this little notebook here, and this is probably notebook number 13. But as you can see, there's a lot of thoughts in here. I'm going to take just a quick snapshot of just one of those pages, uh, not close up. Look at that. Yeah. So um, how, how often are you journaling? Every day. How many of those do you have? 13. 13? Yes. So and the book uh, is pretty much already written. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a lot of lessons learned in there, and uh, I'm always learning from people. Uh, every human interaction that I have is a learning opportunity and an opportunity to better broaden your horizons as a leader and as a better human being. But uh, when Jim spoke about grass eaters and meat eaters, I used that analogy to go ahead and start instilling the warrior ethos into people that were not in combat specialty jobs in the Department of Defense helping them understand that regardless of what they did, that their actions eventually are going to contribute to something greater. And that is exactly what happened in Octave Fusion with those 130-something airmen. They got to see it didn't matter whether they were a logistician, maintainer, a cop, and their actions matter because Jessica was brought back. And I had the honor to talk to Jessica about it and highlight that specific group of unsung heroes that even Wyman Howard came in and told them, hey, your actions were decisive in this rescue. So uh, that is really the value of what I ended up writing. It began as a paper, like 20 silver bullets, and I just basically put pen to paper saying the stuff that nobody else wanted to say because it may be construed as callous, as too aggressive. I just said, screw it, I'm doing it. I'm doing this my way. And I put it out to the masses and... Uh, the majority of the troops loved it. They're like, it's about time somebody started taking the gloss off 
and telling us exactly what is that is expected of us. So, can you find that white paper open source? Oh yeah, it, okay. Yeah, you get you can Google it. What I'm going to include this in the article, but here here's the thing about you. And I, I spoke to a lot of uh, people that know you, uh, Joe Barnard, mm-hmm. who I love, um, who's now a full fledged hippie. I oh, love it. Oh yeah. Um, and, and you bring up Jim Hinsky. It's like, you see the art he's creating. Phenomenal. Like it's just like these guys were warriors, but poetic warriors in a way. But um, also Nick McKinley. I don't know if you remember Nick. Yes. At the schoolhouse. Yes. All of them praised your leadership. Now, I believe warrior is more of a mindset than it has to do with the, the profession of arms. It's, it's fully a mindset. You can be a warrior within your respective profession is what it's saying. But you and all of them said had the uncanny ability to be both a warrior and a statesman. And that's what the SEAC position, I'm going to assume, is, I mean, you're engaging with foreign senior military leaders. You're often the senior person in your entourage going to, to Yemen or, or, you know, Qatar or, or, or elsewise. Did that, how, who refined that ability, or did you already uh, have that? Did you learn it from somebody? Well, I believe it, it's all about human understanding. It's all about reading your audience studying your audience, knowing exactly what is it that you need to get after, and then shaping the conversation. You cannot leave that to chance. It's not a Hail Mary. It's not an audible. It is a deliberate plan of communication and interaction that you bring to make the conversation meaningful. And that is also part of being respectful to the other party, that if they're giving you some time for you to be able to go ahead and maximize the effects of the time that you're having with that person, to go ahead and achieve a common goal. Um, that is really something that I learned early on. People like McCraven, always very respectful, very pointed, and you always knew where you stood. You know, you knew what you needed to do and you needed what your expectations were. So notebooks kept track of some of those things. When I liked something, I wrote it down. When I didn't like something, I wrote it in bold letters because those were probably the best lessons learned. But it's that understanding of the, the human dynamics involved into getting to decisions, uh, getting to agreements, and so on, that eventually save the day, whether it's domestic or international. You always got to make sure that the conversation is tailored to what is most important to both parties, not just your agenda. Talk to me about the uh, modern day, and, and I'm going to use special operations, sort of special operator of... We need warriors. We do. We need the guys carrying the axe that can do violence on behalf of uh, uh, of the world in, in freedom. But it seems like you know special operations in Vietnam compared to special operations now is yeah. We need you to be good at you know in the art of or trained in the uh, art of war, but in the profession of peace. But you also have to be a statesman. Yeah. And you and, and again talking to all these people, they said you've done it masterfully, and your composure. Your, your emotional intelligence are off the charts. Um, you've seen the evolution of soft. How, is, how has that changed? Because, I mean, a special operator for, again, the, the, the listeners can be carrying a gun and then the next week is in a State Department uh, building in some African country trying to liaise with the U.S. State Department. And again, you know, um, <clears throat> we turn to learn from the best. And you mentioned Dave Cooper oh, before, yeah. you know. So Dave Cooper was one of those guys to where I pay close attention when he was interacting with some of our agencies and others in order because very cerebral guy too. I mean, like an engineering degree. I mean, the, the, the guy's just brilliant. But uh, I got to learn quite a bit from Dave just by paying attention as an E5 and, a, and an E6 uh, serving with him. And uh, you ask questions. You know, you ask questions like, hey, why did you shape the conversation this way? And they will come back and say, well, because, look, these are the red lines that they were prevented us from making any progress. So I circumnavigated just like any tactical target to get to where we needed to be. And it was just that correlation between the tactical mindset and the strategic effects that you wanted to create that I gravitated towards. Because if you want to solve a problem, you got to make the problem harder just to make sure that you're not caught off guard, or get taken down by a stupid blind spot. Mm. So being diligent, being deliberate, and being very, very purposeful on that communication and interaction was something that I also learned from my time in the Joint Special Operations community. 
you know, we, we had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Brent Smith uh, yeah. last night before uh, Shine Down uh, played a concert. Um, one, it was awesome watching you two. I, 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 funny enough, I tried to post on Instagram. You know, uh, Ramon Colon Lopez and I had an opportunity to sit down with Brent or at Brent at Shine Down, watching two leaders within their respective uh, professions talk about leadership, performance, and the, how music is uh, medicine for the soul. And it kept rejecting it. I don't know why Instagram would, would, would reject that, but that's honestly how I felt was watching you two sort of go back and forth, both top of your, your professions. Um, and you mentioned something about, you know, he brought up politics and you said, Hey, well, we're, we're apolitical. And, and I, you always say that in the military because you have to be, I believe we're all political creatures by nature. We just are, but you have an ability. And, and this is actually, praising you, your professionalism to put that aside, whatever political beliefs you may have to serve the president, whether he's blue or red. Um, how did you sort of rectify that to remove your personal feelings from the oath you took to the constitution? Well, the oath is definitely the most important thing. And, uh, I have always encouraged the youngest of troops to go ahead and memorize that oath. And then to put it into context of what it means to them, because it brings a lot of things into perspective. But the other thing that I realized is that I got to see how ugly and sometimes even dumb people cited when they started tipping heavy into any political side without facts. And I knew that that was going to be a pitfall for me if I did anything like that. And I couldn't do that to the position of the SEAC. I mean, we have to uphold that position with honor and to the true core of what the oath tells us to do. So in order to do that, regardless of who was in power, it was about right or wrong and what matters the most to the troops. And I never let personal agendas get in the way of any of that. I rationalized. I talked to plenty of people, making sure that I wasn't going one side or the other. And we communicated it is the most important thing but i'm not one to kiss rings i'm not one to bow down to anyone i'm going to stand for what is true and what is right and i know my purpose as a warfighter and a political warfighter to call bullshit when i see it and to call right when i see it and that is really how i navigated that minefield for four years there must have been a lot of decisions that came down the pipe and, and i'm going to take a have you ever heard the amazon the company, the principal, it's disagree and commit. No, no, no. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful principle. And we saw this on the battlefield, whether you agreed with the, you know, the troop uh, master chief or the, the troop sergeant major, if he said, we're going right, and you're like, no, we need to go left. Eventually, if he said, no, we're, we're, we're going my direction. It's, it's fine to disagree, but eventually, once the decision's made, commit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like, you know, media has been just vicious on the leadership within the Pentagon over the last uh, few years. I mean, how, do you, how do you deal with the, the media side? And, and I'm going to say the garbage that's just coming out nonstop. Again, as you said, the facts. People don't know the facts. It depends on what outlet they're listening to that sides one way. Did you guys tune that out at your level? You have to. I mean, you have to because uh, the one thing that I realized during my time in Washington is that a soundbite, or a headline can get spawned in many different ways, depending on what sells. I have been a victim of it. I have been thrown under the bus myself. And I learned really quick to be more pointed on my communications with people. And that also came at the price of having to shut certain people out because I'm like, Mm. you have an agenda. It doesn't matter what I tell you. You're going to spin it to whatever you want to go ahead and put out there. So thank you, but no thanks. Go ahead and go with somebody else's narrative. And, uh, At the end of the day, everything that I did when it came to the public or the social media uh, sphere was to inform the troops, to give them the facts, to make sure that they had the right ammunition to critically and rationally think about the issue at hand and not fall victim to some of the narratives that were being put out there. And a lot of people have different opinions of General Milley, but his MO, his modus operandi was Steady as she goes, the facts will eventually come out and they'll go ahead and back off the narrative. And he took more shots than anybody else out there. But 
when the facts came out during closed hearings and everything else, you got to see that, that a lot of that rhetoric ended up going away, which is very concerning to me and very disappointing that it was more of a ratings drill mm-hmm. versus less properly informed the American, the American people drill. And I made a request for the duration of my time as the SEAC that I will not discredit the office by letting somebody spin my narrative. So I was very pointed on everything that I said. And I have fans and I have some people that really hated what I said, but I said what needed to get said. And it wasn't a popularity contest. It was just me fulfilling my duty and my role as the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I think that's true in anything you do. You're going to have the haters. You're going to have the, of course, your, your supporters. But as long as you follow your values, then there's nothing more than you can do. One of the the major themes of this podcast is legacy. And as you approach your retirement after 33 uh, plus years of service, when you reflect on your career, what do you hope your lasting legacy is going to be? And is there a specific moment or mission that stands out as defining your service, in your opinion, that you're most proud of? Well, I think, you know, based on what I know, and what we have seen over the past uh, four years in our nation, I think uh, the moral courage and the character that we exemplified at the Pentagon during these hard times, it should be something that people should pay attention to. Uh, not give in to the expectations of the agendas to people, but stand for what is right. You're going to win some and you're going to lose some. But at the end of the day, I was asked many times, with all the buffoonery that is going on in Washington, D.C., why don't you quit? Why don't you let it go? And my answer was very simple. If I were to quit, it will open the door for some yes-men to come in after me and let all of these things go. I'm going to stay because I've been a fighter my entire career, and I'm not about to stop fighting right now. And at the end of the day, whatever decision gets made by the people that have the authority to make those decisions it's going to be an informed decision, and I'm going to give him my peace of mind if it's going to go against what the troops need. And that's what I'm going to do until my final day as a service member of the United States of America. So that's what I hope the legacy is, to have the moral courage to stand up for what is right, regardless of the price. And if it came to my firing, then so be it. I was going to hold my head up high because I went out fighting, not because I quit. You can see the convic- conviction in your, uh, your eyes and your face, and I truly believe that you, uh, you believe that, and that's refreshing. Um, I will say that if our political leaders acted with the professionalism and civility of our senior military leaders, this would be a much better country, but that's a uh, different topic for, or a much larger to- topic for a different time. What's that one moment that stands out to you in, the, in your, your military history, though, your, your history in the military? Is it, is it on the combat zone, watching the men, or is it in the SEAC position, watching the people work on a grander scale? I think it's eventually uh, taking that experiential knowledge from the battlefield and doing something with it in order to go ahead and inspire the future generation. Because you know that heroism is of the moment, Right. Anybody can have a valiant day on the battlefield. And maybe that defines the rest of your career by virtue of a decoration and so on. But I think the true essence is, is what you do with that credibility to make sure that future generations are able to fulfill that commitment long after you're, you're gone. And right now I'm circling the drain. You know, I'm a few weeks away from retiring and I'm living proud and honored that the next generation is going to go ahead and pick up the flag right where we left it. When that flag goes up and when America needs them, they're going to stand ready to be able to go ahead and stand the watch. And that is really the true essence of a fruitful and meaningful career. You're just making sure that you're setting up the institution for success based on what you have done with the time you had. Is the next generation of warriors better than we were? Absolutely. I'm telling you, I just uh, I ended up uh, participating in what they call the PJ Rodeo. Uh, which is basically a competition for the best team. And those studs, man, I just looked around the crowd and just said, I feel for the enemy that wants to go toe-to-toe with every single one of you. They're more educated, they're stronger, and they're willing to be lethal by any means to go ahead and go ahead and stand up for the red, white, and blue. 
and man, I'm gonna I'm gonna rest peacefully in retirement because the service is gonna be in good hands. Amen. And and that is in large part to to your contribution as a leader and many that came before us that set us up for success and hopefully we did the same for the next generation. For those young individuals who are contemplating maybe your career in the military or even becoming a pararescueman, what is that advice or wisdom you'd get to the, give to this younger generation, the, uh, the 15 to, to, to 25-year-olds? There's a lot to be gained by military service. Um, one of the biggest enhancers of prejudice is lack of travel. And people that leave their hometown and end up experiencing other cultures. I mean, from the second that you enter basic training, you're going to meet people from places where you never have been before. And then you're going to travel the world, and you're going to be deployed to many places. It's going to continue to open up your eyes to a bigger world out there. And every time you take those opportunities with a purpose, based on an oath that you take that nobody else takes, wanting to give your life, man, it's a great life to live. And even if you do it for just four years, by the time you leave, you're going to have more life experiences than 99% of the people that you grew up with. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to be more understanding of differences in people, which eventually is going to create a lost dynamic in our communication in America to where if I disagree with you, I'm going to shut you out or cancel you. I'm not going to give you the time to listen to your point of view. Being in the military facilitates all of that for you to be open to those conversations. Because seldom have I had a disagreement with another one of my military team members, specifically from our tribe, that didn't get settled in the first five minutes of a conversation based on facts. People need to master that act, that art in America to be able to go ahead and live in a democracy that we actually basically been upholding for so long. But uh, for any young man or woman out there that is contemplating military service, do it, give it a shot. You don't need a government handout to get a free education. You get the GI Bill. You don't need to go ahead and save money to create a bucket list. The military can take care of that bucket list every day by doing something that you never thought that you will be interested in doing or places where you think that you could never afford to do that. And take myself as an example, somebody that came from nothing with no English language and given many opportunities to be able to thrive, and here we are today. Not because of preferential treatment, but because of having the courage to act and to take those opportunities without fear of failure and always, always looking forward. The land of opportunity, asterisk, hard work required. Yes. So retirement's on the horizon. Uh, maybe that's an understatement, November 3rd. Uh, what's next for CZ? Any specific plans or uh, aspirations that you have? Well, um, First thing is uh, relax, spend a little bit, uh, spend a little bit of time with family. Um, definitely uh, have been negligent on that particular front for many years. Um, as you can see, I have a passion for writing. Maybe I'll do some of that. Um, just to go ahead and continue to share lessons learned and set up the next generation for success. Uh, and consult with people. Help America thrive again by imparting my experiential knowledge into leadership approaches to be able to be more effective, better humans, and to increase collaboration across the lines between the military industry and the civilian sector. Uh, also do quite a bit of uh, philanthropy as well. Just want to make sure that I do some work uh, for youth specifically. The reason I didn't become a PJ right from the get-go is because there were no PJs in Bridgeport, Connecticut, man. You know, so to provide an example out there for communities to realize it doesn't matter where you come from, you can do whatever the hell you want as long as you're willing to do it. Just go ahead and embrace the pain that comes along with it, the hardship that comes with it. And I just want to continue a life of service, man. Really, that's that's what I want to do. It's given me quite a bit. It's time for me to pay it back. <laughs> After 33 years, it's time for you to pay it back. Yeah. You said relax for a little while. I think that's going to be a very short tenure. Um, I don't think you have it to, 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 I don't think you know how to relax. Um, with the pace you've gone, some people are just, they've got to be moving forward. Yeah. I mean, hell, the second I left the command, 
that's when my body started to fall apart. I think had I stayed in and kept on moving, things would have operated a little better. Well, CZ, um, I'll say it on behalf of a grateful nation. Thank God that we have men and women like you that serve their country for so long with such passion. They never lose that sense of curiosity, that loyalty, that, that, that just commitment to this nation. And for anyone who says this nation is, is on the downhill slope, you know, I've, we, you've heard this phrase, you know, we've got our share of problems, but this is still the best nation in the world and we, we will figure it out. I'm sure every generation thinks uh, the country's going to hell. If you ask the uh, older post-World War II vets during the Vietnam era, they probably would have said the country's uh, going to end. Not true. We always find a way. Um, congrats on the retirement. I hope you do get a little rest and relaxation in, and then hopefully you and I are working on some good projects moving forward and we're jumping out of some airplanes, hopefully into Puerto Rico. I would love to set up a Puerto Rico uh, expedition. You show us around the island, a Hell bit yeah. of both. So uh, don't discount me. I, I can make that happen. Andy Stoff and I can make that happen along with our good crew. Thank you for joining us, man. And again, congrats on the retirement. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity, man. And uh, for the audience, it's uh, really been an honor to be a part of this podcast. man. It's been a long time in the making, but I'm glad we got it done. Perfect. All right, guys, thanks for joining us. Remember, go to Apple Podcast, Google uh, Cast, whatever your platform is, leave a review. We actually read them. That's how we learn. Uh, hopefully, it's a five-star review. But again, your comments assist us. That's how we get better. All right, guys, until next time.